You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Uh, it's such, a, such an honor to get to open up God's Word and preach and teach the Bible. If you are a guest with us, it is our tradition to work through books of the Bible, and, and we've been doing that with Mark. And so if you don't have your Bible open, you can turn to the Gospel of Mark. We're in uh, Mark chapter 5. And, um, and our text today in, in Mark, which Joshua just read so beautifully for us, our text today in, in Mark acknowledges two of life's most devastating moments. Um, our text today gets, it gets serious really quickly. Uh, it acknowledges uh, two things in life that perhaps could be your worst nightmare. And the first is... Um, it's a parent tragically losing a child, um, a nightmare, it's just, just one of the worst nightmares that you could have. And then the second is receiving a diagnosis that is incurable. Um, nobody wants either of those things to happen to them in life, right? In fact, uh, most of us in this context, growing up in this culture that we've grown up in, are actually conditioned to, to kind of believe that uh, for us, life should always kind of move up and to the right, right? I mean, this is graduation season, high school, college students are graduating, and there's a lot of optimism and hopefulness about kind of, you know, the potential, and the sky's the limit. It's kind of the way that we often think about life. In fact, um, yesterday, I played the board game with my kids, the game of life. Anybody remember this game, the game of life? We played the board game yesterday, and it's the first time they've ever played it, and it was actually a lot of fun, but it was really timely as I was thinking about this sermon. Like, that whole purpose of that game is just kind of conditions you to think that, like, you know, you're going to kind of go career path, you go college path, either way you want to choose, and but you're going to make some money and can pass payday and maybe land on some vacations and kind of add some kids to the caboose, you know, and, and uh, things are just going to go well to you, and the winner is the one who makes the most money at the end of life, that, like, things are just going to go well, but... One of the things that I was realizing as I was thinking about this sermon while we were playing the game, like, you know what's not in that game, what's not in the deck is the card of incurable disease or suffering, tragic death. In fact, those things are actually way more common in real life than we often want to admit, that we often want to think about. Even, even this weekend, I was talking to some friends yesterday that I bumped into the baseball field and talking to one friend who was sharing with me that, that they had just tragically lost their closest friend to leukemia. And then I was talking to another friend that told me that, uh, that they had a family member that, that passed away in a motorcycle accident. Like, these things are just far too common. Why? Why is real life more like that and less like the game of life? Well, the answer is because we live in a world of sin and death. That's the reality of life on this earth. We live in a world of sin and death. We saw it again this week in the news headlines that there are things that happen in this life that shouldn't happen. And that's because evil is real, because our world is fallen, because our bodies are fallen, because we live in a world of sin and death. But the good news of Christianity, the reason that we have a faith in the person of Jesus it's because it reminds us that God has not abandoned us in a world of sin and death, but instead, God has actually come near to us, that God, in the person of Jesus, is offering deliverance and rescue to us, both from our own sin 
and from a world of sin and death. And our text today reminds us of that great truth. In fact, our text today is going to demonstrate this for us. Our text today is the final in a series of miracles in this section of Mark. I don't know if you remember, but we said that in this section of Mark, we're given three miracles in a row, three miracles of Jesus in a row, that are demonstrating for us what Jesus has come to do. They're demonstrating for us what God offers to the world in the Son, Jesus, the rescue and the deliverance. Remember we said that these three miracles are like little windows. They're like Jesus is pulling back the curtain in his earthly life. He's doing these miraculous works. They're like opening up these little windows for us to look through to see what life will be like in Jesus' kingdom. When, kingdom. when Jesus rules and reigns in full, what life will be like. And he opens up these little windows through miracles to show us that. What the, king, the kingdom is breaking into the world of sin and death in Jesus. And so he's showing us that in these miracles. And we saw the first. The first miracle is that Jesus calms the chaotic storm. That when Jesus rules and reigns in full, the creation will no longer be a threat to us. And that's good news. And last week we saw that, that Jesus will cast out all Satan and evil and demonic spirits, that there'll be no more. Jesus cast the demons into the sea. Did you, you know that in Revelation 21, this vision of the new creation coming, Jesus' kingdom coming in full on earth as it is in heaven, do you know that in Revelation 21, it actually says that there will be no more sea in the new creation? That's an interesting little tidbit there. And it's because to the, to the biblical writers, the sea represented evil. We saw that in the text last week. Where does Jesus cast the demons? Where do they go? Into the pigs, into the sea. And so we see this little window last week where evil and Satan and the demonic will be no more. And then in our text today, we see that when Jesus rules and reigns, and reigns in full, when his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, there will be no more sickness and there will be no more death. And that's good news. We're going to see in our text today the hope that we have in the, in the face of life's darkest moments. We're also going to see in the text today, I want you to pay attention to this as well, not only the hope that we have in life's darkest moments, but the promise that we have of who Jesus is and how he shepherds us through those moments. And that's just as miraculous, just as beautiful, just as powerful to see how Jesus loves and cares for us. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll start to work our way back through this text together. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we simply turn our attention to you now in this time, and we pray that as we work through your holy scriptures, that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes to see who it is that you are in all of your beauty and glory and truth. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word, to hear your spirit. We pray, God, that you would lead us in truth, lead us in grace, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted and turn us in repentance, that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted, you would stir up faith and hope in our hearts, and that you would lead us to greater trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 5, we'll start in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. 
Um, Jairus is living every parent's nightmare. His daughter is at the beginning of her life. The text later tells us that she's 12 years old. 12 years old in Jesus' day would have been the equivalent of about 17 or 18 in our day. She's at the beginning of her life. She's soon eligible to be married and to begin kind of uh, her, her journey. And suddenly she is struck by severe, tragic illness. And there are three things that I want to point out about Jairus and his response to his day of darkness, to his nightmare, right? To that unexpected uh, suffering that is dealt his way. And the first is this. We're reminded that no one is immune to suffering in this life. Okay, I mean, we can even just look around the room and you, you can go, nobody in this room gets a free pass when it comes to suffering. Nobody, not a person on this planet is immune to suffering. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue, which meant he was a man of significance in his community. He's a God-fearing man. He's a law-keeping man. He's a generous man. Likely, he was a benefactor in the local synagogue. Uh, rulers of the synagogue even had a role in teaching others in the community. And so he's no doubt a man of great influence. And maybe you've heard it say, said before that, that um, bad things shouldn't happen to good people. Haven't even heard that saying before. Bad things shouldn't happen to good people. Well, that statement is theologically problematic for many reasons. But one of them is, because, is that we live in a world of sin and death. No one is immune to suffering. No one is immune to tragedy. Tragedy doesn't happen to us because God is punishing us or because we've made some mistakes and God is smiting us. If maybe you are here today and you're going through some really difficult times and difficult circumstances or perhaps in your life you've experienced painful tragedy and suffering. I know that the enemy often likes to kind of make us think things like that. Like maybe if only I had done blank, or if I hadn't have done this, or if I had done that, then that wouldn't have happened to me. God would have blessed me instead of this. God wouldn't have allowed that to happen to me. I just want you to know that that is fundamentally untrue of the Bible. That that is, you see that nowhere in the Bible. The reason that we experience things like what we see this father experiencing in the text is because we live in a world of sin and death. In fact, Jairus, a good man, a good leader in his community, he reminds us that the most certain thing in all of our lives, every one of us, the most certain thing in each one of our lives is that we will experience suffering, tragedy, and eventual death. You're like, glad I came to church today. <laughs> so uplifting and encouraging. But it's true. It's true. We live in a world of sin and death. But there's some good news in the text, and it leads to the second thing that we're reminded by Jairus, and that's that because Jesus has come, because Jesus has shown up, there's actually real hope available to us on our darkest days. When life in a fallen world deals us heartache and suffering and loss. Because Jesus has shown up, there's real accessible hope. When tragedy strikes for Jairus, he runs to Jesus. As I was sitting with the text this week, I had a thought. I thought, I thought, I wonder what would have happened. I wonder what Jairus would have done had Jesus not shown up that day. Had he not sailed across the sea and shown up that day. It's not like Jesus was on a tour, you know, and tour dates were posted in advance. And they knew where he was going. Like, what would have happened that day for Jairus had Jesus not shown up? If he had not been there, well, there would have been no hope in Jairus' day of suffering. There would have been no hope. He would have done what 
what, what millions of people do that don't know the hope of the real Jesus. He would have been plunged into heartache and grief and loss. I think about 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4 where Paul tells the Christians in Corinth where there's persecution and death of the early Christians. He tells them, he says, I don't want you to be like those who grieve with no hope. He goes on to tell them that Jesus is coming again and when Jesus comes again, he will raise all of those who are dead in Christ in glorious resurrection. Jairus would have been like people who grieve with no hope no access to grace. He would have had no access to the presence of the living God in his darkest day. He would have had no peace on his day of suffering, but Jesus was there. Jesus was there, and so there was real reason to hope. And the same is true for us, that because Jesus has come, because God has come into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, there is reason to have hope even in our darkest days. The light of Christ shines into the darkness of our world of sin and death. In fact, I've seen this play out over and over again in my pastoral ministry. I've seen it personally in my own life, in my own family. About five years ago, my mom was diagnosed with a really severe uh, 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 breast cancer. It's like the worst breast cancer diagnosis that you can get. And I watched how that moment, that day of darkness where life kind of dealt her that card, I watched how that actually led her to run to Jesus. And in the real person of Jesus, she accessed great hope and strength and peace, even in her darkest day. I've got a pastor friend of mine right now who's in his early 30s. He pastors in Houston, and his wife was recently diagnosed. They have three young, uh, three young kids. His wife was recently diagnosed with a brain tumor. And I've watched that family, how they've clung to the real Jesus. They've run to him because he's here, and there's hope, and there's strength, and there's resource, and there's real power and real peace that the Spirit of God is flooding into their heart, into their soul. I've watched so many of you on the day in which life has dealt you the card of tragedy or suffering or sickness, how you've clung to Jesus and he's been with you every step of the way, how you've turned to him because he was there rather than blaming him. You access the good news that he offers. You see, because Jesus is here and because he's come, there is hope as we suffer and live in a world of sin and death. And that's good news, amen? Amen. Verse 22 tells us that Jairus seeks Jesus and he falls at his feet. I want you to know that that is a significant act. Um, the early read readers of the Bible would have recognized that that meant something. Jairus falling to his feet, it's a signif significant act. It was a sign of great honor and great trust. In Jesus' day, to fall at someone's feet is to make a person great. It is to exalt someone high. And so Jarius is acknowledging that Jesus is more than a teacher. He is honoring him as the supreme authority, which, which is a big deal, by the way, right? I mean, this is a costly deal for a prominent Pharisee to do this so publicly. And Mark makes sure to mention that he is doing this with sincerity, that he's earnest. There is real dependent hope in Jesus that he is expressing and it seems that the humility, that the sincerity, the real hope, and the living Jesus, it seems that it actually uh, moves Jesus' heart. That God's mercy is unleashed by his humility and his sincerity of faith. I want you to know that we see this across the scriptures. That we see that the heart of God is moved to compassion and to, to mercy by humility and sincerity of faith. 
It's all over the Bible. James 4, 6 tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. I want to read to you Isaiah 57, 15. I want you to listen to this. This is, this is a truth about the God of the Bible. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, and whose name is holy. I dwell in high and holy places, God says, and also I dwell with him who is of, of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't that beautiful? That God dwells, the high and holy God comes near and lowly to the humble and to the broken. I tell you, just as an aside, if you want to be made whole, if you want Jesus to move and work in your life, get broken before him. The best way to be whole is to be broken before Jesus. If you want to see God move in our world, in our community, in our church, we must come before him, not proud, not self-sufficient, not dependent upon our own wisdom and our own, our own abilities and resources, but desperate for him to move in our midst. And he pours out his mercy and his grace to the lowly and to the humble. And Jairus reminds us of this. In fact, he's a breath of fresh air in Mark's gospel. He's the first in Mark's gospel, the first of the social and the religious elite to come to Jesus with humility and faith. And in verse 24, we're, we're told that, that it moves Jesus' heart, that Jesus goes with him, that Jesus is eager and ready to extend mercy to him. And so, so he comes to him, he falls at his feet, and Jesus says, all right, let's go, take me to your daughter. And I imagine Jesus keeping Jairus by his side, keeping him close. The crowds are kind of pushing in and pressing in around them. They're ready. Here we go. Another miracle moment. They probably got their phones out, ready to record it. Uh, this is going to be awesome. Jesus is going to do something awesome again. I'm imagining him keeping Jairus by his side, near to him in the midst of the crowd. You can only imagine hope starting to well up in him. You know that turn that can often happen in our hearts from despair and sorrow and joy and hope is bubbling up. Jesus has heard my cry. Not only has he come, but he's heard me and he's walking with me. But then suddenly, Jesus stops. Jesus stops walking. You can only imagine what must be going on in Jairus' mind. Look back at verse 25. Why does Jesus stop? Well, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This woman has some sort of severe uterine issues. Some scholars think that perhaps she's older and it could be some form of cancer. Some scholars think that perhaps she's younger and that maybe, much like the, the, uh, the little girl who's 12, that maybe this issue started for her at about that same age. And since then, there's just kind of been this uh, uh, um, uh, extensive, constant um, menstruation. But she's, 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 the point of the text that we see here is that she is a different kind of sufferer. That's what Mark is highlighting for us. She's a different kind of sufferer. And so you have on one side, right, back to the game of life, there's like the career path or the college path. In this situation that Mark is putting before us, you've got the, the tragic uh, suffering that happens out of nowhere that none of us are immune to. And then you have over here, you have the prolonged, long suffering that could come at in an instance in any of our lives. She's a different kind of sufferer. Look back at verse 26. She'd suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and was not getting better, was growing worse. Um, the plight of this woman is threefold. First, her illness is chronic. And if you are a sufferer or you know someone who is a sufferer from chronic illness, you understand this plight. 
to be chronically ill, to, to in your, your inner person, to feel like your body is defective. You know this plight. To be weak and to be exhausted physically at all times. To not be whole, to, to, to know that your body needs mending. Something's wrong with my physical body for 12 years. So her physical illness is chronic. It's cost her all of her money, and so she is financially bankrupt. She's exhausted all of her resources. And, and again, if you experience chronic illness in some way, you know this plight, right? You, you think of all the other things you'd love to be doing with your resources, maybe saving for your kid's future, maybe that vacation or that trip that your friends take, or maybe that remodel or that addition to your home, but yet all of your resources are being exhausted on this illness that's in your body, but yet it's not going away. It also reminds us that there is a limit to what human wisdom can do, even in our modern day of medicine, all of our advances. Did you know that 133 million Americans suffer from chronic illness? Did you know that? That's over half the population suffers from some form of chronic illness, even in all of our advancements with, with medicine. Finally, we also see that it's cost her this illness, it's cost her any measure of social or spiritual life this particular illness that she has, um, this flow of blood, this discharge, according to the Jewish, to the laws uh, to the, uh, among the ancient Jews, Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 through 27 kind of talks about um, what needs to happen so that you can remain ceremonially clean if you're having a bodily discharge for both men and women. You can go read that. And if you want to talk about that later, we can talk about that. But let me just say this. Here's what that meant. It essentially meant that she is spiritually isolated, unable to worship because she's continually unclean. It means that she's socially isolated. The law also talks about Le Leviticus 15, that if you come in contact with someone while they're having a bodily discharge, that that, that person then is ceremonially unclean. And so, um, so she, she's socially, relationally isolated. Much like the leper that we read about earlier in Mark, she essentially is a social pariah. Here's the point. This woman, her life has been totally, holistically wrecked by sickness. That's the picture. Long-suffering. Yet she hears that Jesus is in town, and like Jairus, hope flickers. <laughs> she hears that Jesus is in town, and because he's here, because he has come, because he's real, light shines into her darkness. And she does everything that she can to get near to him, to get near to this great physician. Look at verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and she came up behind him in the crowd, which by the way, she's coming up behind him in the crowd because she's so full of shame. She's hiding. She shouldn't be there. She comes up behind him in the crowd and she touched his garment. And for she said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up. She felt it in her body that she was healed of her disease. And this is pretty stunning. But just what a thought here, just even just on a theological level, something that's true about Jesus, something we should believe about Jesus. This is pretty stunning, right? Um, her, she's an unclean woman. And her touch, it doesn't infect Jesus. But instead, Jesus infects her. Isn't that beautiful? That his, his power, his glory, his grace, his mercy heals her. And this is true of every single one of us that have come to Christ by faith, that have accessed him, his throne, by 
faith, by grace through faith, that as we come to Jesus, that he makes us clean, that he heals us. What is his, his righteousness, his holiness, his splendor, his glory, we are clothed with in Christ. It's a theological reality about you. No matter how dirty or sinful you might still feel, if you are in Christ Jesus by grace through faith, you are clean. He has made you clean. And that's good news. So she touches him and she's healed. She feels it in her body. But he also feels it in his body, which is just an amazing miracle. Someone much smarter than me needs to write that book about how Jesus feels power leave his body and what that might have been like. That's a really amazing miracle, but it tells me something what Jesus does next. Jesus isn't fine with just healing someone and leaving her a stranger. It tells us something about the kind of Savior that he is. He is a personal Savior who wants to know those whom he calls and whom he saves. He cares about you and your story. And so Jesus, the personal Savior that he is, he gives her voice. In fact, he's going to call her out of her fear and out of her shame into faith and into peace. Look at verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his, his disciples are basically like, are you kidding me? Like there's like a million people all around us. What do you mean who touched you, Jesus? Right? His, his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down, we see that again, falling down at his feet, falling down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This woman comes up to him, comes in front of him, and she's afraid, and rightfully so. She's an unclean woman, ceremonially unclean. She shouldn't even be there. And now she's touched a teacher of God's law. So, not, so by, by not only touching other people, but touching a teacher of God's law, she's made him unclean, or so she thinks, but she doesn't realize and recognize the power in which Jesus has. And again, we see the mercy of God. It is unleashed into her life through her honesty and through her humility before him. I love the fact that Jesus has her tell her story. When the text says, tell the whole truth, that's what it's talking about. That she, He basically has her tell her story. We wouldn't know her story. It wouldn't be recorded in Mark any other way. She tells her story about how she's been suffering for so long and it's cost her all of her money and all of her relationships and pretty much the whole of her life. And Jesus, with great compassion, heals her. I want you to just take note of the care of Jesus here. He's not only the great physician, but he is the good shepherd. He affirms her. He has her tell her story. He sends her in peace. He does away with her shame and her fear. She doesn't have to go back anymore afraid, afraid to telling her story of what she's done that she might get in trouble. No, he sets her right in every way. He calls her out of her shame and into faith. It's really, really beautiful. It's really beautiful. Back at chapter verse 35. The story continues. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And so Mark is doing this thing where it's like a story within a story, right? I want you to imagine this. Like, again, try to put ourselves back at thinking about Jairus again now, okay? Hope is welling up. He's excited. Now all of a sudden Jesus stops and he's, he's spending so much time with this woman. He's drawing out her story. She's telling her story. His attention and focus is on her. For Jairus, it probably feels like you're like in an ambulance 
and this is like a life or death situation, and the ambulance is speeding down the interstate, and then all of a sudden the ambulance just pulls over to help somebody who's had a fender bender, you know? That's probably what it feels like to him. He's like, what are we doing? What are we doing? And then his worst nightmare becomes true again. A messenger is sent from the home and basically says it's too late. It's too late. She's dead. You can tell the teacher, thanks for trying. We appreciate his time, but it's too late. And there are a couple of reasons that a messenger would say this. One, people don't come back from the dead. <laughs> There's no framework for this. Like this Messiah guy, Jesus, maybe he could come and heal her. We heard he's been doing that. Ah, it's too late. He didn't make it in time. She's dead. But there's another reason as well that he's essentially saying, just tell him thanks, but no thanks. And that's because just like coming in contact with a woman who has a bodily discharge would make you ceremonially unclean, according to the law in Leviticus, the same is true for anyone who would come into contact with a dead body. And so it just would make common sense in Jesus' day. Like, it's too late. He's, he's not going to come to the house. She's dead. I can imagine that this was stunning to Jairus. And I think that he's probably still standing next to Jesus. Remember the crowds all around them? I think he's probably still standing next to Jesus. Jesus is speaking to the woman. This is all happening, kind of bang, bang. He, he's still speaking to the woman. The messenger shows up. Hey, it's too late. Tell him it's too late. I think Jesus overhears this. And not only does he overhear the messenger, but I think he probably observes how devastating that this is to this father. Look at 36. Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Um, there's something here in verse 37 that we could easily overlook in the text. The fact that he lets no one go with them except Peter, James, John, and John. I think we could easily overlook, again, what a good shepherd Jesus is in their darkest day. Like, Jesus refuses to allow that his, Jairus' sorrow, the worst day of his life, he refuses to allow that to be a spectacle to the crowds, likely sending the other disciples to take the crowds elsewhere. I'm imagining that he walks the rest of the way alone with, 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 with Jairus, maybe Peter, James, and John following behind them. And he speaks to him. Verse 36 tells us, he speaks to him. He says, don't fear, only believe. Don't fear, only believe. Don't fear, only believe. The verb tense here suggests that Jesus is essentially saying, keep on believing me. It's like Jesus is saying to him, you've trusted me this far. You trusted me from there to here. Now keep trusting me from here to here. Keep trusting me. Keep trusting me. Perhaps there are some of you who are here this morning who are experiencing in your life what feels like a kind of an end-of-the-road moment. And you need to hear this same word from the good shepherd Jesus. You need to see the proximity of Jesus to Jairus in his darkest moment. You need to believe that, that Jesus is, in fact, even nearer to you by his Spirit. You need to hear his loving words that are saying, you've trusted me this far Keep trusting me. Keep trusting me with your marriage. Keep trusting me with your body. Keep trusting me with your kids. Keep trusting me with your life. You've trusted me this far. Keep trusting me. 
Trust me, not your circumstances. Trust me, not your feelings. Trust me, not the counsel of your worldly or your phony friends who are telling you otherwise. I'm still here with you. Keep trusting me. You see, Jesus, he not only offers us hope in our darkest days, but he is present with us by his spirit to shepherd us through those days. Look at verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Stop for a minute. In the first century world, professional mourners would have come to lead the family through mourning a death. It likely would have looked like some people playing a flute. It might sound weird to you, but it was pretty normal then. People playing a flute and then others that are leading out, almost like choir leaders, in grief and wailing and mourning. In fact, we probably should learn a thing or two from, uh, from ancient peoples not to bottle up our grief and stuff it. So that was the point. So they're already leading them in the process of grief. And Jesus shows up. All of this is happening. And Jesus asks a question that actually reminds me of the question that he asked his disciples in chapter 4, verse 40, when they're in the midst of the storm. Right? He shows up and he asks, he asks them in that scene. Um, <laughs> the storm has been raging. And remember, remember this? And they're about to die. And Jesus shows up and he goes, why are you afraid? And it's like, are you kidding me, Jesus? We're afraid because we are in the middle of a ferocious storm that's about to kill people. It's human nature to be afraid. And Jesus asks a similar question here. Why are you wailing and weeping? What's all the commotion about? And it's a similar question. Like, Jesus, are you kidding me? We just lost our young daughter. This shouldn't happen. Things shouldn't be this way. They're doing what they're doing because that's what people do in a world of sin and death. But Jesus knows what he's about to do. Jesus is about to, about to pull open another curtain for us, open another window for us to see into a new world, to see into the new world in which he is creating, a world where death has no more sting and there's no more need for mourning and wailing. A world where tears will be dried up, will be wiped away, and fear will be no more. Look at verse 40. But he put them all outside, Again, consider his care. This is beautiful. He puts them all outside. He took the child's father and mother. He takes just the parents and those who were with him, James and John and Peter, and they go into the room where the child was. Do you see his care for them? He takes her by the hand and he says to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. I want you to know that the, this phrase in Aramaic that Jesus says would, would be the equivalent of like saying, um, uh, uh, honey, it's time to wake up. My mother, when I was younger, she used to come into my room and she would put her hand on my forehead when I was asleep and she would say something like that. Sweetheart, it's time to wake up. Maybe you had a parent that loved you gently like this. Um, and this is the picture of Jesus coming in as this good shepherd with mother and father and then with his closest disciples and he grabs her by the hand and he essentially says to her, honey, I'm here to wake you up. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 42 and immediately the girl got up and, he began, and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus wants her to have breakfast. I began this sermon by saying that Jesus offers us hope in life's darkest moments. 
And I said that Jesus is present with us in those moments to shepherd us. He's near to us. He's with us. I want to close the sermon with that same question. Jesus offers us hope in life's darkest moments. Why can we say that? Why can we say that as followers of Jesus? That Jesus offers us hope in life's darkest moments. Especially, why can we say that when so many of us in this room don't get the miracle? Like, we don't get the miracle that Jairus gets. We don't get the miracle that the woman gets. So why can we say that, that that Jesus offers us hope in life's darkest moments? What is the hope then? Well, the hope is not in the miracle. It's not in the miraculous healing. The hope is in Jesus. It's in Jesus himself. The hope is in who Jesus is. The hope is in what Jesus has done. The hope for us in life's darkest moments is in what Jesus has promised to do for those of us who believe. Did you know that Jesus actually does a greater miracle for Jairus? Did you know that Jesus actually does a greater miracle for this woman? And it's the same miracle, it's the same thing that Jesus has done for you and for me if you've given your allegiance to Jesus and made him king. And that miracle is his own suffering. That Jesus, God in flesh, that he willingly suffered on our behalf, sinners and sufferers, for us, to deliver us from a world of sin and death. That miracle is his own death, his own crucifixion, that he willingly took my sin and your sin upon him, our uncleanliness upon him, so that we could be made whole and clean and called in to the presence of the loving Father. That miracle is that through the cross, he has healed your spiritual affliction. And through the cross, he has awakened you from spiritual death. And that in his own resurrection, three days later, he rises from the grave. In his own resurrection, he has opened a door to resurrected life for all who would believe in him. I want you to hear me. That Jairus' daughter would one day die again. You realize that, right? Like she would physically die again. This woman in the text that he heals, the day would come for her again when she would experience bodily ailments and afflictions. Our bodies are fallen. Her body would once again begin to break down. But in Jesus, there is a promise to all of us who trust in him that we will be raised, that we will be raised in glory to eternal life and to imperishable bodies. That is the greater miracle. That is the real hope that we have as we face tragedy and suffering. Tragedy and sufferings that no one in this life is immune to. That's the real hope that we have in Jesus as we live in a world of sin and death. The hope that Jesus really lived and the life that he lived shows us the kind of savior that he is and the kind of salvation that he brings. The hope that Jesus really died and that his death meant something for those who access all of his grace by faith and that he was risen on our behalf and that he will come again. That is the good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel for sinners and sufferers who live in a world of sin and death. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your beauty and your glory. We thank you for the kind of savior that you are. We thank you for the hope that we have access to because of what you've done for us, that you've come and that you've lived, that you've died, that you've risen, and that you are 
risen and that you are reigning, even now, and that you, just like we see in the text, that you are a good shepherd, and that as you sit seated, you plead for us, you intercede for us, you've given us your spirit to walk with us and to lead us and guide us through whatever life might throw our way, whatever life in this world of sin and death might throw our way, we have greater hope in you. And so we do pray that as we turn to the table now, as we turn to a time of response, we do pray, Jesus, that you would nourish our faith, that you would help us by your spirit keep trusting you, keep believing, keep walking with you until the day in which we are healed, until the day in which we are raised up in glory with you. Father, we honor you. Christ Jesus, the Son, we lift you high. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this time of response. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to respond together by taking communion. So if you are a Christian, if you're a baptized believer this morning, we want to invite you to come to the Lord's table this morning, to come and take. Before we go to the Lord's Supper together, I want to read to you from John chapter 6. John 6, 53 through 58 reminds us of this. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last days. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Nothing else will sustain you as we live in this world of sin and death. There's not enough comfort, not enough money, not enough material, not enough vacations. Nothing else will sustain you but Christ alone. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. He's with us. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever, forever. Did you know it's through gathering with the church week by week, through taking the sacraments, hearing God's word, that our faith is nourished, that we are reminded that Jesus is with us, that we keep trusting him, we keep walking with him through whatever it is that life might deal our way. So we're going to respond this morning by going to the table. There'll be two stations in the front, one on this side, one on this side, where you will be served the elements, the body of Christ broken for you so you can be made whole in Jesus and the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins so that you could be made clean in him, forgiven, finished. And that's good news. And so we're going to celebrate that good news together. And so the band's going to lead us. They're going to play. We're going to have two songs during our response time. And that you can come forward at any moment. If you're a baptized believer, take communion. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Celebrate his grace. I invite you to stand. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Let's worship. The table is open. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.